Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. For the common people. Solid talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's lots to do this morning. We are edging ourselves into the end of the week. It's Thursday. Isabel Oakshot's going to join us, Talk TV's international editor. Uh, could there be a looming banking crisis going on? Why on earth uh, has a council down in Plymouth decided to cut down a load of trees? despite the fact that they're supposed to be saving the environment by putting in a cycle lane against the wishes, of course, of all the people that actually live there. Uh, we're going to talk about what else is going on with the budget and the fallout from that. I mean, I'm not entirely convinced that this government has done anything really particularly good in the last 24 hours in terms of Jeremy Hunt's ideas about building growth and bringing people back to the Conservative Party. I, I, I'm willing to be convinced, and Isabel Oakeshott may believe, in fact, that the childcare uh, situation situation is going to be a lot better for an awful lot of people. Some people think that's a good thing. I'm not sure that it is, but I remain to be convinced, and so that's why we're all here. If you can convince me of something uh, that I don't believe, then by all means have a go. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about uh, the state of the railways as well, because there are some who think there's going to be some kind of um, solution inside, but there's yet another rail strike today. London was completely gridlocked yesterday by the tube strike, which was an absolute and utter nightmare. Uh, We're going to also talk about what on earth is going on up in Scotland, because they seem to be fighting like rats in a sack to be the next leader of the Scottish National Party, but everybody telling me uh, that there's a big story about to break up there and nobody's quite sure when and who it is going to affect. But everybody thought there was a lot more to the Nicola Sturgeon resignation uh, than met the eye. Also, Helen and Nicklin is going to join us as well. Uh, she's got some uh, ideas for St. Patrick's Day libations. We'll be doing a bit of that as well. Lots more uh, to talk about. Of course, 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, I'm going to tell you about some recycling tricks uh, that I've found out about because there are lots of things that you can't actually recycle. Michael. You'd be amazed at the list that I've got in front of me, and I'll be revealing all of that to you throughout the course of the morning. And don't forget, of course, uh, if you haven't done it yet, go and subscribe to the podcast, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, and you never have to miss any part of the show. Uh, you can download it from any any podcast platform that you can find. 0344 499 We'll bring you all the breaking news, of course, that happens as well. This is The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it going. Well, let's say a very good morning to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. Isabel, very nice to see you. How are you? Morning. Now, are you going to be a, a grumpy old dinosaur when it comes to this childcare thing? What exactly are your objections? Well, I've got two. I've got two objections really. One, um, I don't particularly feel the need to subsidise other people's 
children and child raising situations. If you want to have children, I think you should at least have some plan in action to pay for it. I understand if you want to go to work and you have to put your children in, in, in care for a while, that's fine. You know, but up to a point, Lord Copper, I think is, is my point. I was hearing people saying yesterday uh, when calling in on, on radio shows, oh, we're going to be £700 a month better off. I'm going, that's an awful lot of money to be giving people, which is essentially taxpayers' money that you're going to be giving people. And it's an awfully big investment. And the second part of it is that it's kind of a slow burn, isn't it? It's not really happening to a large extent until next year and the year after. That, that's my basic kind of complaint. Okay, so those two things we can take separately. The first one is a, is a principled uh, objection and the second one is a practical one about how it'll all take too long. In fact, the two things aren't that compatible. I mean, if you don't like the principle, you might be quite pleased that it's all going to take ages to actually happen if it ever does. Mm. Um, but just looking at the principle, you know, you're sort of saying, why should I, I'm paraphrasing here, why should I subsidise other people's kids? Yeah. I mean, these are decisions um, that, that politicians have to make all the time. So, you know, you might just as well say, why should I subsidise fat people on the NHS? Or yeah, why should that's I a good question as well. <laughs> anyone who, who has any kind of health condition relating to smoking or alcohol? Um, all of those things are a result of self-indulgence that don't help anyone else. Having children is probably something that overall is quite good uh, in limited numbers for the country. We don't want to just die out. So it's probably a good idea that we keep the population going. That's not an entirely selfish thing to do. And it's probably not a good idea that huge numbers of parents, and it is usually mothers, are not able to work because childcare is just too expensive. So you're going to have the children either way. You might as well get these mothers into a position where it's actually affordable for them to work. Well, possibly, but it depends really, doesn't it? Because the other problem with subsidising it um, is that you're actually a bit like the uh, the, uh, the grants that people are getting to pay their electricity bills. You're, you're basically paying that money to women or parents who give the, who then give the money to profit-making enterprises. So you're actually subsidising people who are making rather a lot of money out of it, which, again, I don't think is a very conservative principle. Well, you're just, you're just wrong about that, because unfortunately, um, these generally nursery providers are not making a very great deal of money. Um, and certainly the people providing the childcare aren't making a great deal of money either. We've got a real problem with nursery providers going out of business, diminishing the supply, and then you've got a smaller pool of providers who are then raising their prices and you're in a vicious circle. Now, one of the reasons that there is not enough provision is that there's far too much, in my view, far too much regulation. It's always the same with this stuff. You know, of course, we don't want a free for all that anyone can set up, you know, some kind of dodgy nursery, which has no kind of inspection or regulation at all. Um, but I think there's far too much fussing about the detail around the edges. You know, I mean, sometimes the fundamentals are missed. Plenty of nurseries have very little, even no outdoor space, which seems to me one of the most important things for a nursery. Um, and yet, you know, there's a meticulous tick boxing about almost everything else, which is quite marginal. So, again, also ratios, all of that stuff, I think, is really important in terms of how viable these businesses are. You know, I, over the years, have spent a gargantuan amount on childcare, over half a million pounds in the course of my career. I've only been able to do that because I'm lucky enough yeah. 
have really well... And that's well kind of mad, work. though, isn't it? I mean, is, is, does that not tell you that there's something massively wrong with the system? And so propping it up and giving more money to it doesn't seem to me to be the way to cure the problem. Well, um, you know, in my case, actually, I mean, if you've got multiple children, it is cheaper to have a nanny, and then you're in a whole other world of hurt of basically being an employer with all the responsibilities that that goes that goes along with that and in particular for example having to set up pension schemes for people you know are probably only going to be with you um for a year yeah. sometimes less you know there's just so much red tape around this stuff and being a nanny is of course a a, a proper profession uh, for many in the business but let's be honest for many people it isn't you know it's just something that they're trying their hand at also, most people who are having children will be probably listening to this going, a nanny? For heaven's sake, I can barely afford to put the food on the table. We can't afford a nanny. But effectively, it's the nanny state that is the nanny. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're all paying to look after people. I just, I'm just really worried about this kind of growing sense that the government is in charge and the government is going to grant us some of our own money to raise our own children and then tell us, telling us then to go back to work. You know, it just doesn't feel right to me. Well, that you and I can definitely agree on. Thank you God. Know, I don't want a massive increase in the size of the state. You know, we know that that has happened uh, to an enormous extent over the last 20 years. And, you know, you're absolutely right that there's a supreme irony in continuing to take ever more of our taxes and then expecting us to be grateful when we get small bits of it back right. again. I mean, I listened to a a very weak Tory MP, fortunately for the individual concerns, I can't remember what their name was because they're so unimportant. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I listened to that MP talking to Nigel Farage yesterday, um, really trying to make a kind of virtue out of the fact that the Tories, as he put it, you know, saved all these businesses from going under during yeah. the pandemic. Well, hang on a minute. You're the ones that shut everything down. Right. So those businesses were in peril in the first place so there's been a complete kind of loss of um fundamental conservatism uh, on the part of the conservatives mm. they've forgotten that the whole point of them is supposed to be opportunity for all you know opportunity for individuals small state high growth they don't do any of that no, stuff they really don't and a lot of people have been critical of this particular budget overall as a kind of gordon brown style budget um, with a sort of conservative sticker lumped on it and i th i can't really argue with that no i mean i can't either i, I can't I'm, i go on and on about it but that's because i think it's incredibly important what is this conservative government doing hiking corporation tax from 19 to 25 no they're trying to sort of persuade us all that that's okay because there's some way of if you fill out you know 10,000 forms and meet 10,000 criteria you might possibly be able to get a bit of a discount on some of your capital investment well that doesn't really help many companies especially not smaller ones providing services and it doesn't help in the overall if you zoom out to the decisions that foreign-based enterprises are making about whether or not they want to set up in Britain. I mean, why would you do that if you know you can go to Dublin or Dubai? In Dubai, there's no tax at all of no. this type. No, so I just don't think we can be competitive on this level. No, I think that's the problem. And, and it doesn't appear to me, and I, and I continue to make it in, in, a, in a more sort of macro level, I suppose, I continue to worry that all of the, the government that we currently have's view is that make it look as if you're doing something decent, 
But are you actually doing anything? You know, as I said to Julia, you know, the, 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 the Windsor framework is, is, is not really much different to what it was before there was a Windsor framework. You know, the migrant stop the boats campaign isn't stopping the boats, but they're saying they're going to. You know, we've now got the childcare um, initiative. We've got, you know, a growth initiative, supposedly. It all looks like they're doing something, but actually, are they doing anything? You're absolutely right that so much of this is a comms triumph rather than an actual triumph. And I would say we could perhaps, if we're being generous, give Rishi Sunak, what, six months maybe to stop the mm. boats coming over? I mean, if those boats are still coming over in large numbers in the autumn, uh, and I confidently predict they will be, then his policy has failed. Yeah. Um, and I think he set himself up for a big fall on this one. I've got no confidence it'll happen. If it, if it does, then brilliant. You know, you've stopped a bad thing happening. It doesn't mean that you've actually created a good thing. <laughs> no, because you've still got all of the people here who came before you stopped them. And they're still talking about very high numbers of immigration, which yeah. actually we don't need if we tackle the source of the problem of worklessness. Now, the government did try to go some way to tackling some of that in the budget yesterday i thought the measures on making it easier for people with disabilities to actually get back into work sounded very very good and i know they were um pushed for by the center for social justice which is very sound on these matters mm. so i've got some optimism about that um, and it's absolutely right that the world of work has changed massively and it's no longer um, you know, an excuse if you just because you can't get out the house and and so on that you can't do some kind of job online. After all, we now know mm. that so many people are working from home anyway. Right, exactly right. Stay where you are, if you wouldn't mind, Isabel. We're going to talk about a ridiculous situation down in Plymouth where the local council have sh knocked down a load of trees, cut them down, I should say, uh, in order to put a cycle lane in. Uh, and the local residents are absolutely furious and up in arms about it. Uh, also, government officials and government ministers being told not to use TikTok on their official phones. What on earth were they doing that for? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Isabel Oakeshott is here with us, Talk TV's international editor. Um, it struck me, and I saw this story yesterday, because of the budget, we didn't really get into it, but I saw that you uh, were tweeting about it uh, as well, Isabel. This incredible situation in Plymouth where a Conservative council, in uh, for, for reasons best unknown to anybody, really, has gone against the wishes of the people there. A 16,000-strong petition was signed, but nevertheless, they cut down a load of trees, apparently, to make way for a cycle lane but worse than that they did it in the middle of the night so that nobody could stop them i mean it seems extraordinary just extraordinary to do that under cover of darkness well there's only one reason to do that under cover of darkness because you know that there are going to be protests and mm. it's really distressing to see trees come down like that now i'm not familiar with the area but it doesn't look minus the trees in a particularly beautiful area um, and I would have thought the trees were a massive enhancement. You know, everything we know about urban planning is that having that green space and having um, all that na those natural habitats for insects mm. and bees and um, other little bits of wildlife is hugely important. Look, it looks so grim, doesn't it? It's awful, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard to see how a cycle lane can somehow compensate for, for the utter devastation that they've wreaked there. I mean, I genuinely think heads should roll over mm. this and, and it should be an absolute lesson 
to any other weirdo, you know, council people who've got their priorities so completely skewed mm. that they should face serious consequences for that. I mean, can you imagine, you know, these are the same councils that make residents jump through all sorts of ludicrous hoops if they want to use a different type of slate tile yeah. in their listed building or mm. put in a change a wall or raise a ceiling slightly if a building happens to be historic. And yet they just drive a coach and horses through the middle of their town centre, mm. destroying all that lovely stuff. I it's know, it seems, it seems incredible. And particularly since there was a very active campaign. I heard somebody from the campaign talking this morning um, and they actually had a petition, which for a place like Plymouth to get 16,000 names on a petition to say don't yeah. do it. They also apparently had one of those ridiculous consultation meetings at which even on the council's website, it says there was overwhelming opposition to this plan. And they went ahead and did it anyway. I mean, where's the accountability? And, and the tragedy of this is you can't kind of bring the trees back, you know. So there's not sort of this is not reversible, as they know very well. Mm. And don't the stumps just look awful? It's like you've cut limbs off, yeah. you know, big, big bits sticking out. So I would like to identify who took this decision. And I think that person needs to resign from their role. Right. I really that well, given that it's a Conservative council, maybe, and it's Luke Pollard is the, uh, the local MP who's from the Labour Party. He was tweeting about it as well. I just wonder whether the Conservative Party as a whole uh, should have a look at who the hell is running that place and have a word um, at the very well, least. Yeah, a bit more than a word. Um, and absolutely, Luke Pollard, um, useful uh, pun on the name there, uh, <laughs> should get well stuck into this because, you know, no Conservative council should be behaving in this way. No council should at all. Yeah. Um, why did the trees need to be felled for a cycle lane? I bet it's some ludicrous health and safety thing that a branch might fall down as a cyclist is coming through. I mean, what the Unbelievable. hell? Unbelievable. I know. And when yesterday, I don't know whether you were caught up in it, um, but yesterday's traffic in London because of the tube strike was. was unbelievable, right? Oh, and, my God. And Piers yeah. Morgan nearly didn't make his show. You probably nearly, I nearly didn't, make didn't make yours. I nearly didn't make it either. Um, I yeah. was lucky enough to get out there early, but, I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, and one of the reasons it was a nightmare is that, you know, when you get stuck in traffic now in London, there's nowhere to go. There's a bus lane on the left. There's a cycle yeah. lane on the right. There's a bollard over there. Yep. You know, there's a light and, a, and a, you know, you can't turn left because you're not in the right lane. And the entire structure of London's traffic and its roads has been ruined by the mayor of London. Ruined. Uh, I mean, and half the time there's, there, you don't see that there's an actual need for slicing up huge bits of roads for cyclists. I mean, Hyde Park, and this is boring for people that aren't from London, but huge slices of road have been taken. And this is replicated all over the country. Yeah when cyclists were perfectly happy going through the adjacent park. Mm. Um, on the way into Oxford, I mean, don't even begin to open up the can of worms that is the mess that Oxford councils are creating with their, you know, their short 15-minute traffic zones and all this nonsense. Yeah. Um, it is awful. I was caught up yesterday. It took me two best part of two and a quarter hours to get from central London over to Ealing, Nothing quite like that to make you question your life choices. Oh, my God. I mean, I was literally, I mean, I thought I was going to have to throw myself under my own car just to sort of put yeah. myself out of my own misery. But it wouldn't have been going fast enough to kill me, unfortunately. No, so quite. I probably would have, would have not would have survived. Let's finish up with, with, with a recap on the old lockdown files, because I see that well, there's an announcement coming soon. Uh, we think this afternoon from the government that they're going to ban 
ministers being able to use TikTok and government officials being able to use TikTok on their official government phones. I mean, what the hell are they thinking? What are they doing with TikTok on a government phone anyway? I've absolutely no idea. Um, my, I tried to, I've tried to master TikTok, um, and <laughs> I have to say, thus far, I've failed. I'm not terribly motivated. And given that most politicians are sort of, you know, our age, they they are generally middle aged. I've no doubt they've spent ages trying to work out how to use the bloody thing. What are they doing, spending their time on that? It's it, already there. Are any in any case, questionable aspects to TikTok. Mm. It's uh, Chinese origins and whether or not it's actually a wise thing uh, to engage with. So I'm not surprised they're being told not to do it. Only surprised that anyone thought it was an appropriate use of of ministerial time. Indeed. I mean, the only thing I said when I was on the talk the other night was maybe it would have stopped Matt Hancock from sending quite so many messages on uh, WhatsApp. And maybe if you I really on... doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I see he's trying to rehabilitate himself at Cheltenham this week. Well, maybe maybe there's going to be a whole other Matt Hancock rehabilitation tour. I mean, maybe he'll get rehired to go on I'm a Celebrity. It'll be a rare case of someone actually going twice into the jungle. Yeah, I absolutely. I can see it all now, can't you? I mean, he really does seem to be the man who uh, will refuse to be put down. He just keeps popping up every time you think he's you, you think you finally put him to bed, and here he is again, popping up in all sorts of un- unlikely places. What we need is his TikTok account, Mike. And then, you know, maybe there's lots of interesting things lurking in there. <laughs> and go full circuit on this. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, the, the Telegraph's work, which was um, largely provided, well, entirely provided by you, um, has, has, has been and gone. I mean, even in these days of 24-hour news cycles, it lasted a long time. Um, it's still, it, I, I will say to people, you mustn't forget these stories. You know, it's important that we remember what that story was and it doesn't just get lost in the sands of time because so much does these days. I totally agree with that. And I know the Telegraph is very keen to keep pushing on some of the key issues that were raised. So, for example, the time frame for the public inquiry, we still have no deadline for that. And I'm not going to be happy. And I'm sure millions of people will feel likewise with an inquiry that has no deadline. That's obviously a nonsense. And then also, I think one of the key things is a recognition of the ongoing struggles of people whose lives were affected by lockdown. Now, I heard somebody using the word nostalgia regarding lockdown recently. Oh, there's a bit of nostalgia. Please, there is no nostalgia for the millions of people who really suffered during this time. So I know the Telegraph wants to continue highlighting those stories in particular with a focus on children. And, you know, whilst the main thrust of the investigation is over, there's still an awful lot of material there left to explore. Mm, Very much so. And for the Tory party and for MPs individually to say, we saved loads of businesses. Yeah, well, maybe, but you also killed loads of businesses as well. And there's people still recovering from that. And the three and a half million freelancers who didn't get a penny. Absolutely. You know, if you just didn't quite tick the box, you hadn't you hadn't been. I can't remember exactly the criteria. I think it was being freelance for two years or something. If it just happened to be right. one year and 10 months, you were you were stuffed. essentially. Yeah. yeah. But it was all right so if you just invented a company forget, the day before. We should, we should never lose our astonishment at what happened and our determination that never again should a small number of people allow allow power to go to their heads in such a way that they take control of our lives on a completely false prospectus in some cases. Mm, Absolutely. 
Very good to see you, Isabel. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, meet, I'll see you soon, I'm sure, in Ealing or somewhere. Isabel Oakshot Talk TV's uh, international editor. This is, of course, Talk TV. Uh, we've got something special coming up very shortly for you. Uh, we'll bring it to you next, right here. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got loads and loads of messages coming in. Of course, many of you very upset about what happened in Plymouth. We'll be talking a bit about that. Nearly North London said, Armada Way in Plymouth is a beautiful, wide and long pedestrian thoroughfare which goes right through the centre of the shopping district. It's full of gardens, seats and trees. To down the trees for just for yet another cycle lane is absolutely obscene. Uh, morning, Mike, uh, says Brad in Cambridge. It is the children I feel sorry for. So many parents are outsourcing their parent to strangers and only spending time with them at weekends. Um, and Tony from Barrow in Furness says, Mike, why would you trust to put young kids in with a nursery that may employ a lefty teacher type who believes there are 73 genders? Well, most of them only believe there's 72, but maybe there is another one that you can add in. No, listen, I'm quite uneasy, and I'm, Isabel Oakeshott has her view, I have my view on this. I think giving your children to a childminder uh, for 30 hours a week, one, is probably not a great idea. Two, um, should not be something that is subsidised by all other people in society, because if you don't have any kids, it makes you eff uh, effectively a second-class citizen, doesn't it? But we'll talk more about that. 0344 is the number. Let us now, though, go and get the latest on what's going on on the railway because there's yet another strike today. Yesterday it was absolute mayhem, certainly in London, because of the tube strike. That's not on today, but there's still railways out on strike. Simon Calder is with us outside Liverpool Street Station right here in London. Simon, a very good morning to you. Uh, Mike, yes, and uh, well, you were talking to Isabel just now about nostalgia, which some people apparently feel for COVID. If you have nostalgia for rail strikes, don't worry, they're back. <laughs> um, we've got four days of rail strikes today on Saturday the 18th. Then on Thursday, the uh, uh, 30th of March, two weeks from now, and on top of that, April Fool's Day, that Saturday, which will take the rail strikes, national rail strikes, first for since the 1980s, um, into their 11th month with no sign of a settlement. Um, although there are some interesting things happening today, uh, if you want to travel from Liverpool Street Station to um, maybe beautiful South End, lovely Clacton, uh, notable Norwich, then you can do that very easily. There's trains running all day. Yes, they're finishing a little bit early, but um, we are seeing right across the country, I think about a half of train services are running, which, of course, if you're a union trying to bring the nation to a halt, isn't particularly brilliant news. Mm. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you've been saying recently, though, you were of the opinion that this might be coming to an end soon. We know that there's been talks going on. Um, I was listening to an interview with Jeremy Hunt this morning, at which, at the end of which he kind of hinted that there might be some kind of light at the end of the railway tunnel, if you'll pardon the, uh, the use of that. Um, and we're, we're hearing that unions uh, from the NHS have received a new pay offer, and you wonder whether um, maybe that will have some knock-on effect on uh, Sir Mick Lynch, as I like to call him. Well, I was talking to Mick Lynch um, just a little earlier across at Euston Station, where they've got the uh, usual picket line. Oh, yeah. um, and I, I said, look, how long is this going to go on for? You know, you've been on strike for many, many months now. You're members have lost thousands of pounds and he gave me the strong impression that he wants to begin talks in the next few days now the train operators who are represented by the rail delivery group and ultimately signed off by ministers um basically said well you've had your best and final offer um 
just just put it to your members and of course the rmt says it was a rubbish offer we're not going to put such a rubbish offer to them so we will see i think some movement because ultimately if we are living in a situation where anybody who does for example today need to get from plymouth to inverness can do that by train quite easily on a strike day and you are seeing um more and more people just saying okay if you're not working that's fine i'll stay in um in, in stevenage or woking or other wonderful commuter locations and i won't travel in that day at which point you're kind of uh, your your members are carrying on striking losing hundreds of pounds um a time and not actually getting to a position where they're going to be able to recoup that so i think we will see some movement meanwhile of course the reputation of rail for resilience gets worse and worse and worse and the finances look even more horrible than they did before yes and i mean nothing as far as we can tell in the budget for um train companies as such or any kind of restructuring or anything like that is that a sort of pie in the sky hope that some people might want to wonder whether these these companies can ever run the railways properly well, right. OK. So so at the moment and, and uh, interesting talking to Mick Lynch and you might have heard him on various media today. They are absolutely saying this is all the fault of the private companies. They've taken billions out of the railways. He knows and I know that's complete tosh. What's actually happening is that the Department of Transport is outsourcing um, a large number of train operators such as um, Greater Anglia here at um, Liverpool Street, Avanti West Coast, GTR. But ultimately, they just pick up a pretty small margin in return for outsourcing, just like, you know, quite possibly somebody, your, your bins are outsourced. Yes. Um, and so, therefore, this is an argument between the government and the um, train uh, and, and the uh, rail unions. Bear in mind, we've still got uh, talks going on between ASLEF and the, uh, and, and, and the rail companies. Um, but they, the big issue as far as the government is concerned, is that the railways have lost maybe 20% of long-term revenue, in particular, all those people who live in in Stevenage and Woking and Basildon who used to commute in, who aren't doing that anymore. And you need to have reform in order to shore up the finances. And they say, yeah, we can get this to work. Um, The taxpayer will still be putting in several billion every year. But we've got to have some reform. And the unions just say, no, we want a no strings offer. However, when I put that to Mick Lynch this morning, he said, well, you know, when you're in negotiations, you quite often say stuff, but you don't really mean it effectively was what he said. So they will take some some strings. Um, Meanwhile, though, while all this dragged on, the rail workers are losing cash. The rail passengers are losing uh, patience. And, um, you know, increasingly rail looks irrelevant as it is actually for the majority of people who are sitting listening to you in their cars thinking how much am i paying to keep this uh, railway system going well this is the problem isn't it and, and with every strike it kind of gets further and further away from the most uh, the, the majority of people because uh, many more people now working from home as a result of uh, this sort of you know i mean i've got to send one of my kids to a school i've got to make a decision as to whether i can put him in a school that he needs to take a train to get to every day because i don't know whether the trains are going to be running every day and if it's and if it's a half hour train ride, what are you supposed to do? You know, when it doesn't run. Well, that's it. That they are um, absolutely undermining the resilience, which is affecting people who are travelling for reasons of education, or maybe, uh, as in your case, or maybe visiting family who yeah. are just deciding. You know, can I can I actually uh, rely on this? And the longer this goes on, 
the more people will just walk away and the worst condition the railways will be right. in. And then the, worst, absolutely... and then the worst condition the roads will be in yesterday. I mean, it might not surprise you oh, to know yeah. that I had to commit myself to an illegal manoeuvre in order to get out of a traffic jam. You know, I await the punishment from the great Sadiq Khan as to what camera he caught me on doing it. You know, it's nothing terrible, but, you know, a traffic violation, a moving violation, as you call it in America, uh, because the roads were literally at a standstill. Oh, yeah, I was in London yesterday, gridlocked because of the uh, um, tube strike, which isn't actually even over pay or anything. It's over what might happen to pensions. But it, it, it's part of the same narrative, Mike, which is that effectively the tube in London, the railways nationally, they are too important to fail. So therefore, all you've got to do is keep striking and eventually um, you will get the money that you or the pension terms that you are yeah. demanding while... Many people in many occupations are having to put up with um, uh, worse terms and conditions simply to, uh, to, to keep uh, their, their jobs. But the idea is, yep, the government keeps funding this and that's, that's the way it's got to go. So with the tube argument, the unions are saying, um, Oi, Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, you go and get some more money from the government, which makes it sound like the easiest thing imaginable. I can imagine um, that's not going to be that's not going to be a discussion that goes especially well. No, indeed. And I guess we should have a final word about HS2 proof, if necessary, <laughs> that uh, you don't need to go on strike to ruin a railway. Uh, you can just invent a new one. Uh, yes, you, you can invent a new one and then just spend the next 10 years chopping bits off. So HS2 might open in 2033 from a place called Old Oak Common, um, which is about six miles west of central London. I know it well. Not a place you particularly want to go. And you'll be able to go to central Birmingham uh, very quickly. And that will be great, except if you want to go to central London, you'll have to change to Crossrail. Um, and they've already locked off the Leeds leg. It looks as though... Birmingham to Manchester might not go ahead until uh, maybe 2040, even later, uh, perhaps, by which stage you, you may be in your 40s yourself, Mike. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, HS2 will not actually run one single yard before I drop dead. So uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not expecting to be on it at any point, I'm afraid. But thank you, Simon, as ever, for your update. Uh, Simon called the reporting in for Liverpool Street Station, where there are some trains running. It's all very well, isn't it? It's OK now if you want to take a train somewhere, but you just have to take a train wherever they're going as opposed to where you want to go. So you turn up at the train station, you go, where are the trains going today? Oh, how about Norwich? OK, then I'll go there. Oh, but I do actually want to go to Cambridge. No, sorry, I haven't got a train to Cambridge. So you can only go to Norwich uh, and for where you can maybe get a taxi to Cambridge. You could try that. It is unbelievable, isn't it? Incredible. But the breaking news on the NHS unions, by the way, uh, is that they have received a new pay offer. An announcement is expected this afternoon. Uh, it follows reports of progress in talks involving the unions representing nurses and ambulance staff. So um, this follows, of course, the suspension of the NHS strikes overall, although the junior doctors are still out. We believe. I think they're out again today. Uh, this is Talk TV. We'll take some of your calls coming next. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got loads going on. We're going to be talking some more about the budget coming up in a little while. Annabelle Denham is going to join us. Uh, she's now Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Uh, we're also going to talk about, uh, of course, the drone strike uh, that's been going uh, in the news in the last couple of days, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation. Bob Seeley is going to be joining us as well. Also, uh, we'll be finding out what's going on with the Scottish National Party and their leadership race. It all seems to be turning a bit ugly. And there's supposed to be a big bit of breaking news that every 
everybody's expecting, but nobody quite knows what it is. Uh, but the highlight of uh, this first hour that we're going to do here, second hour actually, I should say, uh, is one Jacob Rees-Mogg, Conservative MP for North East Somerset, former Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, he joins us now live from College Green. Jacob, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Not at all. It's uh, quite a nice day, reasonably clement today. Uh, it's not always nice after a budget uh, statement, and it's always a bit of a, a sort of a hangover day, isn't it? Because everybody's examining the budget, everybody's looking into it, uh, everybody's wondering whether it's good, bad, indifferent. Um, I'm not certain that it's um, a conservative budget. A lot of people describing it as a kind of Gordon Brown-esque budget with a blue a sticker on it. What do you think? Um, you conjure up an extraordinary image of Gordon Brown with a blue rinse. I'm not quite <laughs> sure that it's that. I think the difficulty facing the Chancellor was that there isn't um, excess cash around. So £400 billion was spent during Covid. Uh, the deficit is still quite large. And therefore, he needs to find money to fund what the government does. And that's where you get into the fiscal drag, and it's the fiscal drag that is going to have the biggest effect on people's living standards. That is the um, failure to um, uprate thresholds for the 40p rate and for the lower tax band in line with inflation. That will have an effect on everybody and means we will all be paying more tax in the next year. Yes, which doesn't sound terribly conservative to me. And I mean, I'm being asked the question this morning, am I better off today uh, after this budget or am I worse off? And my honest answer is I don't actually know because it's been so, it's so kind of complicated what he's done. I'm not sure anybody can really decipher it. Well, you've always got to look at what isn't actually in the budget, what isn't announced, that was done earlier. So one of the things that was done earlier was the announcement that thresholds wouldn't be uprated. So they weren't actually discussed yesterday, but that is in fact the most important fiscal decision that has been taken. I, I think it will be worth something like £30 billion between uh, now and 2027. Yeah. And what about the childcare supplement that he's done? Because, again, um, I'm slightly wary of a government that tells me um, that I should go back to work and give my child to somebody else to look after if I don't want to do that. I, I, look, I think you raise a very good point. Uh, and shouldn't it be about choice and mm. saying to people, do you want to look after your children yourself or would you prefer them to be looked after by somebody else? Uh, and um, uh, Pete Hitchens pointed out in the Daily Mail today that the only people who don't get any financial benefit to look after their children are members of the family. Right. And it does seem unusual for a Conservative to want children not to be looked after within the family. So I think that's a very valid question. Yes, I think so. Because, I mean, it was described to me as one of those things you'd expect from, from sort of North Korea. You know, that you know we'll take your children, we'll educate them, we'll give them back to you when they're uh, properly educated and told that there are 72 genders, and then, uh, then you can decide whether or not you can change their mind later. Well, I don't think we're going away North Korea, but I get your point. I think the fundamental responsibility for bringing up children, and I know a little bit about this because I've got six of my own, by the grace of God, yeah. um, is with families, it was with their parents and not with the state. I don't know if you remember, the SNP had a proposal a few years ago, which fortunately it never got through, that every child would have a nominated adult from the state yeah. to look after its interests in some vague way. I thought that was deeply sinister. Mm. The responsibility for children rests with the family. Absolutely. And on a broader scale, 
I mean, you've been in the government, obviously, relatively recently, but do you not worry that the government's reach now has kind of solidified, in a way, in our, in our lives? You know, there seems to be a lot of people in government who would like to take over more of our lives and would like to tell us more of what we can and can't do, uh, rather than giving us back sort of freedom. Well, I'm very strongly in favour of the government doing less and giving people back freedom. I think the problem with the tax rates isn't uh, that the Chancellor doesn't want to cut taxes, I'm sure he does, it's that the state spends too much money. And we've got to start looking at what the state does, and the state needs to do less because it doesn't always do it well and it does it very intrusively. I'm afraid one of the after-effects of Covid is a feeling that the state should take care of everything, should mm. solve every problem, and many people seem to welcome it interfering in their lives. I, I, I think the WhatsApp messages that were released showed how far this went through government as well, that there were people who really liked this opportunity uh, to dabble their fingers in the lives of individuals, and I hope the fingers will be undabbled, well, if that, undabbled is a word. I think undabbled should very much be a word, and used only in that context. I think that would be brilliant. Um, what about corporation tax? Was it a mistake, do you think, for Jeremy Hunt to raise that to 25%? Well, I'm not in favour of the approach where you um, raise corporation tax and then give people allowances so they can avoid corporation tax. I think it's much better to have a simple tax system which sets as low a rate as possible and then allows people to make investment decisions for themselves. I think the government saying that investment is better than paying dividends is not a sensible policy. It will vary company by company and sometimes the people you pay the dividends to will spend the money better than it would be spent if the company kept it and invested it for tax purposes. So I think that um, sort of philosophy of taxation. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...is mistaken. Yes, I think so. We've also got a slight uh, financial concern at the moment. Um, we saw that the, um, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapse in America had a knock-on effect in America. It now appears that Credit Suisse has got a bit of a problem. Uh, they're going to borrow something like 50 billion Swiss francs from their central bank. 
I mean, is this something that we should be keeping our eyes on? Do you think it's something that, that could develop and, and affect the banks in this country? Well, it's obviously a matter of concern, and it will depend bank by bank about whether their assets and liabilities match. That was the issue uh, in 2008. And what's happened is there's been a very rapid increase in interest rates, and some banks have uh, either deposits or loans on fixed rates, which they're finding don't match their um, current income streams or outgoings. And that is a problem. Rapid changes in interest rates can be very difficult for banks. Rises in interest rates, on the other hand, help some banks make additional profits. So you'd have seen the UK banks have had very good profits recently as interest rates have given uh, have risen, but some banks will not have that asset liability match right, and they're the ones that are at risk. But the action of the Swiss Central Bank shows that the whole concept of too big to fail still remains. Yes. But, I mean, it does remind us, doesn't it, that these banks sometimes... And that's important for stability. Yes. But it, it does remind us as well, doesn't it, that these bankers and some of these banks are still sort of playing fast and loose, casino-style investment. Um, I don't know that they played fast and loose. I, I think, as I understand it, they, they've just had a mismatch between assets and liabilities. And that was true with the Silicon Valley Bank as well, mm. that it had bought some um, long-term... Uh, uh, bonds, thinking that locking in a secure rate of interest was in its um, long-term benefit, and then the sharp move in interest rates meant that that didn't work. So it's not necessarily casino activity, it's simply bankers make mistakes, as, as do we all. Mm. Well, indeed, some are worse than others, of course. Um, what about the uh, situation currently, which we're expecting an announcement on uh, this afternoon from government? TikTok, apparently, is to be banned uh, from government ministers' phones. Now, I don't know why they would have TikTok on their phones. I don't know whether you have a TikTok account, uh, Jacob, uh, but uh, it seems to me to be very unwise to have any kind of um, social media account on any kind of phone. We saw what happened to Matt Hancock. You know, what are they thinking? Well, well, the only TikTok that I have, as you might expect, is a grandfather clock, and it makes a very nice TikTok sound, as long as I remember to wind it. Uh, unfortunately, my children have TikTok. I haven't been able to persuade them not to, so I can't say it's not in the Rees-Mogg household at all. Right. Um, but I think one should be very careful of the social media that one uses, and if there is a suspicion that TikTok um, may be misusing data or using its algorithms in a way that seems too intrusive, then I think people should be careful and alert to that. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And finally, one story that we've been looking at today, and we've spoken to many people in other parts of the country where it's happening, is the story in Plymouth, where the council seems to have unilaterally decided to cut down 129 trees to make way for a cycle lane uh, and some other sort of, you know, ridiculousness uh, of sort of local city furniture. It's happening in Wellingborough, we're told. It's happened in Edinburgh. It's happened in Sheffield. I don't know why local councils are doing this, but, you know, it does seem rather vandal-like, does it not, to cut down trees against the wishes of the local populace? Well, isn't there something deeply disagreeable when people who have a little bit of authority abuse it and go and cut down trees in the middle of the night because they know that there will be protests. Mm. I think this is a bad way to govern and it's not the British way of governing and the people involved should be ashamed of themselves. Well, particularly now that council tax has gone up and the tax burden in general on everyone has gone up and yet, uh, you know, they seem to feel like they have no rights whatsoever, even in their own hometown. Well, it's, it's how do you view politics? I think politicians are there to serve the electorate, yeah. not to enforce their passing whims on them. 
And knocking, cutting down a lot of trees without popular consent for another cycle path seems to me to be disproportionate. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, so are you looking forward to... And it's just bossy, isn't it? It's annoying and bossy. Yeah. Uh, are you looking forward to watching Match of the Day this Saturday, Jacob? No. I, I, why should I watch Match of the Day? I don't follow association football. Um, if, if, it, if there'd been a row about Test Match special and Jonathan Agnew had tweeted something controversial, I'd have been interested. But I, I really can't get excited uh, about these matters, I'm afraid. No. The BBC, of course, has already lost the cricket, though. Uh, they've lost most of the football. Um, they haven't really got much to boast about in the sporting area these days. Well, as, as I've said before... That's because they've got the safety blanket of the licence fee, which means that their revenue has been static, whilst other media operators have seen massive increases uh, in, in their revenue, mm. and that they think the licence fee is helpful to them. Actually, it is a constraint on their growth. So um, Netflix does the drama and has a much bigger budget. Sky has taken over a lot of the sport, uh, and its revenue is, what, about three times that of the BBC nowadays? If there was a vote in Parliament tomorrow, uh, I know you don't often sit on a Friday, to, to rescind the licence fee, would you vote for it to be taken away? I, I think the licence fee has passed its sell-by date, yes. Thank you very much indeed. Jacob, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Have a great weekend. Jacob Rees-Mogg, Conservative MP for North East Somerset, former Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. A man, in my view, uh, who should still be in government, actually. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Plenty more to do. Uh, lots of you getting in touch. David in Oxford, she says, it sounds like the tree huggers are going to run out of trees if these councils are allowed to carry on. Well, where are all these uh, tree huggers now? You know, they used to uh, complain that they shouldn't be cutting trees. Don't you remember Swampy? You know, they used to sit in trees. They used to live in trees. They used to stay overnight in trees to stop them being cut down. Where have they all gone? You know, where's Extinction Rebellion? Oh, we can't demonstrate against this particular knocking down of trees. Why? Oh, because it's for a cycle lane made of concrete. I mean, come on. Surely you have to understand that cutting down trees is bad for the environment. Surely. We get told all the time. Trees are indeed the lungs of the world. Are they not? So you're going to cut them down to put a cycle lane in to stop people driving cars because that'll be better for the environment than having trees. Right. I mean, unbelievable, isn't it? The train strike means I'm working from home, says Gerald, a.k.a. watching TV. What a treat to see the independent Republican Mike Graham. And then he said, they said this a little bit earlier. Uh, Please do not let Mike Graham fall out with Isabel Oakshire over childcare. It'll be like Zeus falling out with Hera. Well, don't worry, um, because in fact, uh, of course we're not going to fall out over it, because in the civilised world you can actually argue with people without falling out with them. That's the way it works. Let's talk to Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Annabelle, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. We just had Jacob Rees-Mogg on, uh, who didn't seem entirely enthusiastic about this new uh, style of uh, budget statement from the Conservative Party, which is uh, rather more like a Gordon Brown budget than it is like a Conservative one. I mean, what are they up to? Yes, you're absolutely right. It's big state Toryism. Um, We had our doubts, but uh, they've dissipated now. There can be no doubting at all that uh, we live in a social democracy and the state is already very large and it's going to continue to be large. Um, I don't think the Tories seem to have any uh, designs on lowering the tax burden, uh, no designs on reining in government waste and government spending. And still, it seems like a lot of the measures that are 
uh, introduced and announced by the government are done so with the NHS in mind. It's always we must make these sacrifices, we must pay higher taxes in order to protect and continue to fund uh, the NHS rather than looking at how we might uh, reform the NHS to eliminate waste. Um, But I would say that the bit of the budget that I was most interested in was childcare. Um, I think what was welcome was the fact that the government loosened teacher-to-child ratios. Let's not view this as some radical deregulation of the childcare sector. We've just moved from one adult to four children to one adult to five children, bringing it in line with Scotland. Um, It's still far uh, stricter than some Western nations. In Denmark and Germany, they don't even have uh, state-mandated ratios. So it's a step in the right direction, but it's really a baby step. Also, you know, what was welcome, I suppose, is the fact that the government has increased the amount that it's going to pay nurseries in order to fund free childcare for children over the age of three. I think if you're going to have the subsidy, then the government cannot pay below the market rate in some areas to do so, just restricts uh, supply in the end, nurseries close, private providers choose not to opt into the scheme. So those are the two potentially welcome bits, although of course I would like to have seen the government go farther, further on deregulation. Um, but this you know, massive increase and the subsidy that is going for parents is not welcome at all. I think the most important point to convey your viewers and listeners, Mike, is that this is not bringing down the price of childcare. No. It might be welcomed by parents uh, up and down the country who are going to see their bills go down. Um, and, you know, that's good if it enables them to make choices for women potentially to go back to work. But ultimately, we're just shifting the costs from the parents um, to the taxpayer. Yeah who may not have children themselves. Well, this is a point I was making this morning. I mean, Isabel Oakshaw and I disagree about this because she thinks it's a good thing, generally speaking, for us as a society to subsidise the education of children. I get that. But I do feel somewhat put out at the fact that, and so do many other people, that two things really. One, that the government is basically telling us um, that we should subsidise other people's children. Uh, Also, that people who have children shouldn't really look after them. They should go back to work and they should pay somebody else to do it. You know, two things which I think both people in that sort of scenario should have a choice about. Absolutely. I think we should be asking very hard questions about about why politicians are so keen to take children away from their parents at such a young age for long, very long periods of time. Mm. And essentially what you had in the 1990s was a childcare sector that was largely private and charitable. And in the intervening period, there's been growing government interference to the tune to the point where it's costing the taxpayer now around six billion pounds a year. Yeah. Jeremy Hunt is going to increase that to around four, uh, 10 billion pounds a year. Uh, He's increasing it by £4 billion. And we're not asking why the government is actually getting involved in childcare to begin with. Does it want to improve the educational uh, attainment of perhaps children from underprivileged backgrounds? Is it trying to increase female labour market participation? Well, yes, there was a lot of talk about that uh, yesterday. But all of the evidence that I've read um, suggests that it's not really going to work. For a start, you've already got very high um, mothers in work here in the UK compared to uh, other countries. Um, And a lot of the sums are assuming 
that um, mothers of younger children are going to be in the workforce as much as mothers of older children. I simply don't believe that's true. I think if you look at the surveys, they show that a lot of mums actually would like to work fewer hours and spend more time at home with their children. So, you know, what quite what the government thinks it's going to achieve there I'm not sure. Um, and it wants to improve affordability and accessibility and it, and it wants to, it, you know, impose essentially a curriculum across nurseries in the country. And it's all, you know, objectives that are often conflicting that, of course, as with so many government schemes, they're very hard to measure um, the efficacy of and therefore to justify why the government is involved and why it's spending taxpayer money on. So the whole thing is an absolute mess. And as I said at the start, the issue I have is that we're not bringing down the cost of childcare. We're just making it more affordable for parents. Well, it seems, it seems to me it's exactly the same thing as the uh, subsidised electricity bills. You know, basically, we're still allowing the electricity companies to charge us an absolute fortune. And the government is, is simply using taxpayers' money to pay them. And it's like, well, why don't, why don't you try bringing the prices down and then everybody can afford them? Well, exactly. And pumping up demand, of course, people have no incentive to reduce their energy use if their bills are uh, cheaper. Right. And in childcare, you know, we're, we're spending a lot um, at the state level, high out of pocket costs for parents, the staff are not being highly paid, uh, nurseries are not making massive profits, uh, childminders have been totally pushed out of the sector, reducing choice uh, for parents. That's quite a you know good low cost alternative for some families. Um, and none of those issues are being addressed. Um, you know, we have three, I would say, primary uh, problems with the childcare sector. The first is that childminders have to adhere to unnecessary qualifications, pointless bureaucracy. Um, Ofsted is in charge of micromanaging um, the curriculum in childcare, and nurseries have been forced to hire more staff than perhaps in cir some circumstances they need. Now, that last one has been addressed, but as I say, I'd like it to go further. But the others, you know, it, we're just going to continue on. And ultimately, we're moving to a situation where the government is going to nationalise childcare. And Miriam Cates wrote a good piece in The Telegraph today saying, going a little bit further and saying, actually, the government is really trying to nationalise our childhood. I mean, mm. look at Nicola Sturgeon's plan for named persons um, to sort of right. spy on families and ensure the happiness and well-being of every child in Scotland. Look at Sadiq Khan, um, who's offering free school meals to all children, regardless of um, means. Mm. You know, look at the way that we've pushed a national curriculum through schools, and now we're trying to do that through nurseries. There are so many examples of the state essentially trying to take on the role of parent. Yeah. And with, and with our money, well, that's the bit that I find so bloody galling, is they haven't actually bothered asking. They just keep taking and taking and taking. I and mean, if you were in a relationship with the government, uh, any sensible therapist would tell you to get out of it before they completely ruin you, because that's what they're doing. Finally, though, uh, what is it about the city? Um, you know, we've seen incredible uh, movement and, and, and problems in the banking sector in the last week or so. We had the, the Silicon Valley Bank, um, as a result of its collapse, wiping more value off the shares of companies around the world than anything else, including, by the way, Liz Truss's disastrous budget statement, you know. So, but they've accepted this and they seem to like it. Is it all smoke and mirrors? Is it all like, oh, look, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, they're such sensible people. We really like them. 
Well, I think that they, you know, are right to be introducing things like the Edinburgh reforms. And I think after the tumultuous period that we had towards the end of last year, um, there was a need for somebody to come in and try and calm uh, the markets. And, you know, that has by and large been welcomed, not just by um, the British public, but also quite a lot of conservative backbenchers. But, you know, I, I do think that um, the European banking disaster is now underway. Um, I, you know, I think that we're going to see um, more collapses uh, in the future. You know, I think individually you can downplay uh, the events of the past week. You can say that Silicon Valley Bank was quite unusual. Mm. Um, it had a straight, you know, an unusual bu- business model that Credit Suisse perhaps wasn't uh, very competently run. Um, but the bigger picture is essentially, Mike, we're readjusting to a period of normal interest rates. So for years, the government experimented with ultra low interest rates, uh, thinking that it could continue to um, you know, borrow as much as, as it pleased. And now we're seeing this big adjustment and it's not just going to affect the banking sector, I don't think. I think it's going to affect, of course, companies beyond the banking sector, but government debt is going to become more expensive. Um, I think the housing market is now starting to look um, you know, a little bit vulnerable. So I, I think that we're in for a painful adjustment and people perhaps don't realise quite how serious that might be. Yeah, well, we keep being told that, but it's it feels quite painful already, but we'll see how much worse it gets. Annabelle, thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph, uh, talking about her view uh, on the childcare giveaway. I think people should be quite un... Uh, I don't know, un, unenthusiastic, should we say, about this? Because I think it's a slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, the government is trying to nationalise all sorts of things and it isn't conservative policy. It really isn't. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up next, we're going to go to Scotland and find out what on earth is going on with the SNP. Uh, There's an awful lot of questions being asked. There's an awful lot of mysterious rumours flying around. We're going to try and nail them. We're going to find out what is going on. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots going on today, of course. Coming up, Bob Seeley's going to be joining us in the next hour. He's going to tell us what he makes of this drone footage that we've got uh, from the uh, over the skies uh, of Ukraine, where a Russian uh, drone and a Ukraine plane got involved in all kinds of stuff. Uh, but we'll talk about that coming up in a little while. We'll take more of your calls, of course, as well. Helena Nicklin's here for the Thursday Club. Also, uh, we're going to be talking to Patrick Smith, owner of Seven Oaks, the Seven Oaks Pub in Manchester. Uh, he's going to tell us what he makes uh, of some of the budget and how that's all going to be panning out for the hospitality sector. Right now, though, uh, let's talk to Michael Blackley, uh, who's political editor of the Scottish Daily Mail. There's a leadership race going on in Scotland for the SNP leadership, the next Nicholas Sturgeon. Will it be Kate Forbes? Will it be Ash Regan? Will it be Humza Yusuf? Uh, They've been having uh, some pretty heated debates um, and hustings over the past week or so. Uh, But there's now questions being asked about exactly how the voting process is going to work. Let's get Michael to explain it to us. Michael, very good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, it's all turning a bit nasty up there, isn't it? Tell us what um, the latest is. I saw a letter that was written from, I think it was Ash Regan's people yesterday, asking for a very clear sort of explanation from Peter Murrell, who is not only the, lead, the sort of the head of the SNP, but Nicola Sturgeon's um, partner. What uh, What is it they're asking him to prove or show? Yes, yeah, so there is a quite astonishing amount of mistrust within the SNP at the moment. It really seems to be a party that is at war with itself. So yesterday, concerns were raised by Ash Reagan and also by Kate Forbes' campaign teams about the the process of this leadership contest. They've been trying to find out all the way through the 
leadership contest, a pretty basic fact, which is how many members are actually going to be taking part in the vote. But not only has the SNP been refusing to reveal this figure publicly and to the, to the media, uh, they've, they've been refusing to tell individual candidates themselves as well. Um, so there's a lot of concern about, about this and both, both those uh, two of the three candidates are also calling for a independent auditor to be brought in to run the election because there's concerns about the possibility of other things like people with lapsed memberships getting a, a vote, even things like potentially people putting in votes on behalf of uh, dead party members. So it's pretty extraordinary just how much mistrust there is in the SNP yeah. at the moment. I mean, front page uh, of the papers up there, tell us the truth. I mean, that's really quite damning, isn't it? And there's, there's a lot of people that I've spoken to in Scotland who say that Humza Yusuf is being rushed into this uh, in the sense that he is the kind of continuity candidate. He's the guy that Nicola Sturgeon has kind of anointed, if you like, as her, her successor. Uh, and they're doing it so quickly because of the need to, to get, get it on before uh, the results of any investigations that are going on either into uh, Peter Murrell or into the party itself, into, you know, loans, donations, monies, all sorts of questions being asked. There was certainly a bit of concern from the Kate Forbes campaign about the, the fact that it's such a short campaign uh, that, that perhaps benefits the, the continuity candidate, hum, Hamza Yusuf. Yeah. Uh, because it gives a little bit less time for the the rival candidates to to come back in the in the race. Um, there are these questions about the SNP's finances. They they've been hanging around for some time. There's a police investigation into uh, concerns that have been raised that a, a fund that was set up for independence campaigning right. uh, has been spent on other issues. That's a live police investigation. There's also concerns about the SNP's finances more generally. The chief executive, Peter Murrow, had to have the, the pretty unprecedented step of actually loaning the SNP money. So, uh, and I've, I've spoken to all the individual candidates about this issue, and none of them have any idea what the state of the SNP's finances is at the moment. Right. So nobody knows other than those at the top of the SNP, and they're certainly saying very little about it at the moment. And Nicola Sturgeon, obviously a woman who was very, uh, very rarely away from a microphone or a camera. I mean, I don't know whether it's different because we're just not seeing her down here, but she's not been seen much, certainly on the national stage. Is she still, is she, has she sort of gone into hiding? Is she coming out and speaking much? What's she doing? Um, she is. Uh, she's doing occasional events. She's doing some things. Uh, nothing. No significant business certainly is taking place at the moment in the Scottish Parliament or from the Scottish government's perspective. Um, I suspect that there will be attempts to see what Nicola Sturgeon has to say about this. Uh, this. This whole row uh, this afternoon. She will be taking her penultimate first minister's questions at Holyrood just in about half an hour's time. Um, so I, I think there will be a lot of interest in seeing just what Nicola Sturgeon has to say about some of the concerns that are being raised about the way that her husband is running the SNP as its chief executive. Mm. And I mean, in terms of the uh, some of the things that have been said um, at the hustings, um, Hamza Yusuf says that he believes that um, he can get independence within five years. And then he says in a further five years, uh, he might think about getting rid of the monarchy. Um, What's the kind of public feeling there about independence, as far as you're aware? Because the last time I checked, it wasn't much different to when it was in 2014 when the first referendum happened. 
Yes, I think the, the recent poll that was out earlier in this this week had the support for independence at 39%, which is wow. a pretty incredible low. Yeah. Um, it's it's certainly not progressed since 2014, and there, there are these in, indications now in some of the polling that support is dropping during this leadership contest. Mm. People are looking at the the civil war in the SNP, and I, I think uh, that might put off some people from thinking that it's time for independence. Um, in terms of the way that Hamza Youssef and the, the SNP leadership candidates are talking uh, during this contest, of course they have to talk up the prospects of independence mm. because the electorate here are SNP members, and they want a clear idea from them that they're going to rapidly move towards independence but i think the reality of it is that a first minister that comes in will be fully aware that this looking at the support at the moment this is certainly not the time to be pushing a referendum and i, I don't think you're going to see any real movement on a referendum anytime soon and in terms of uh, whoever does get in would would they keep the sort of um, coalition partnership with patrick harvey and the green party or not that is a fascinating issue because it, it really divides the SNP. There's a lot of people in the SNP that think that the, the deal with the Greens has actually led to the government doing some things that they've got a lot of criticism for. Yeah. Um, so we've had during the contest, both Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes have refused to commit to the coalition with the, the Greens, whereas Hamza Yusuf is absolutely adamant that it has to go ahead. In fact, Hamza Yusuf has, has made the argument that any first minister that rips up that deal with the Greens might actually struggle to be formally appointed by MSPs because if they lose the support of the, the Greens, then they might not get half of the, the votes of MSPs that they need right. to actually be formally appointed as, as first minister. So it's certainly a, another of the many issues that's, uh, that's dividing the SNP at the moment. Right. And, and finally, Michael, I appreciate this uh, explanation of everything. What, what is Peter Murrell's response to this letter? Has, has he said what he's going to provide them with? Has he, has he said anything? So we have heard nothing from Peter Murrell him, himself for quite some time, but there, there is an indication that we may well have some confirmation of SNP membership numbers at some point today. Uh, senior figures in the party, party HQ have been talking about that very issue this morning with with the campaign teams and it, it does seem like they will confirm membership numbers and that will be fascinating as well because it will it will be the first indication that we've had for some time of what the SNP membership is when mm. it was pretty high around 125,000 they used to put it up on the conference screens and uh, really celebrate the, the numbers but ever since it appears to have started reducing we've heard nothing whatsoever mm. about it so it'll be fascinating to see yes. what the number is Absolutely right, well we'll keep an eye on that Thank you very much indeed, Michael Blackley there a political editor of the Scottish Daily Mail Real turmoil going on inside the SNP um, and much more news to come I suspect. Uh, we've got more to do, I'm going to talk to you about recycling coming up shortly and uh, we'll take more of your calls as well 0344 499 is the number, Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have sashayed our way into the afternoon. It's five past midday. Uh, of course, this time yesterday, we were about to launch ourselves at Prime Minister's Questions, uh, followed by the budget. We're going to be joined uh, very shortly by Bob Seeley, Conservative MP and member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, of course. Uh, there's some matters arising from the budget, which we'll ask him about. But also, uh, we need to talk to him about this uh, footage, which has just been released by the US Air Force, uh, which shows a Russian jet intercepting an American drone and dumping fuel on it over the Black Sea. We'll show you that uh, in a moment. It's quite an interesting and rather sort of Top Gunnish looking piece of film. A bit of footage of the real life military in the air and how it actually looks. We've got an, uh, an explanation of what the tree policy is in Plymouth. I never thought I'd ever utter those words, but we've actually got a statement from the Assistant Chief Executive of Plymouth Council. We'll bring you that as well. Don't forget, you can, of course, subscribe to the Independent Republican Mike Graham podcast. Uh, it comes out every day, just after one o'clock. You'll never miss a moment from the show and you can get it on every place you can get your normal um, podcast from every single platform. But let's say a very good afternoon to Bob Seeley. Bob, how are you doing? Hi, I'm well, thanks, Mike. Nice Hello to you. Yeah, good to talk community. to you. I think we've got some footage that we can look at here. It's, it's, it, there's not much of it, and it's quite short, um, but it's quite dramatic looking. Did we have it? Let's have a look. Here it comes. We can see um, the blue sky yonder. You can see a plane coming towards the drone, and you can see what looks like fuel, I guess, coming out of the plane, uh, dumping, on the, uh, dumping on the drone. It's quite an extraordinary bit of footage, though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's pretty irresponsible. Well, it's very irresponsible mm. of, the, of the Russians to do that. And it's the sort of thing which escalates a crisis into something more serious quite quickly. So it's pretty foolish. Yeah, it really is. I mean, some might say, what were the Americans doing there? What was the drone doing there? It's an international airspace. They can do what they want. They've absolutely the right to do it in the same way that the Russians have a right to have drones in international airspace. Um, uh, what, what specifically, I don't know. Um, no. They had every right to be there. Yeah, no, I'm not, I, I'm not questioning it. I'm just saying, you know, there will be people who might say, well, the Russians have a perfect right to, uh, to interfere with a drone. There's no humans on it. They don't like the idea that the Americans are there. You know, they were in, in, conducting a military exercise not far away from there. Um, and, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a drone, it's fair game, they would say. Um, I'm not sure it is fair game, actually, because the Russians aren't directly in conflict with NATO. And one of the things that we're very, very keen to do is to make sure that we don't get into conflict with the Russians and the Russians shouldn't be trying to seek conflict with NATO. So attacking other people's uh, military kit is an incredibly unwise and foolish thing to do by the Russians. And do you think the Russians have done this as a kind of sort of rogue action, do you, do, do you imagine? Or do you imagine it was given sort of uh, the nod from, from way up high? Um, I don't think a Russian pilot would do that uh, off his or her own bat. So mm. I suspect there was an order saying it was OK to do that. Uh, whether this is um, uh, a carte blanche order to, to attack US drones from now on, I certainly hope not. Um, but I can't imagine a pilot, a pilot may have asked permission, he may have thought, I'm seeing a drone, or he or she is because I'm seeing a drone, can I take action against it? And they got clearance at that mm. point. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Well, judging by what Moscow has said, um, you, I think you're absolutely right, because Moscow's apparently denied that the jets behaved dangerously, uh, said that they didn't come into contact with the drone, and they said the drone only crashed because it was uh, due to its own sharp manoeuvring, which, which would suggest that they're not going to be apologising anytime soon. 
No, no, the Russians lie. The, they play this stupid game. They lie. We know they're lying. They know that we know they're lying, but they do it anyway because it's a show of intent. It's a show of dislike. It's a, an expression of force, like we're going to lie to you and it just proves that we think we can get the upper hand or, you know, we're not scared of you. It's just, you know, it's pretty feeble stuff from, from, from you know, what was formerly certainly a great power and a great state. And I think it's pretty depressing it's happening. But look, um, we know what a mess Russia is at the moment because we know that they're, you know, they're still trying to deny there's a major war in Ukraine and it's only a, a modest, you know, a limited military operation. Um, and we know they're they're taking thousands of casualties a week. We know that over a hundred, between one and two hundred thousand Russians have died or been seriously injured in this war. So, yeah. um, and we know that they're telling a great deal of lies along the way as well about whose fault it is and who started it and mm. all that sort of stuff and what they're doing there. So unfortunately, this is part of the course for the modern Russian state. It is sad to see, isn't it? Because, I mean, for all um, the kind of rhetoric and all the, the horrible stuff that's going on in Ukraine, I mean, everyone, I think, would like to see this all coming to an end. But I don't see any end in sight, really, do you? No, uh, not at currently, because I think the Russians are still willing to expend a great deal of manpower on woman power in, in Donbass in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians have got no option to fight, but they also believe that they have a good chance of winning with their offensives, which are no doubt going to take place late spring, early summer, um, uh, in in the south, heading down towards the Sea of Azov, but also in the east, and maybe threatening Crimea as well. So as long as both sides see they can win, then they will carry on. And I think Putin is going to carry on until at least after the U.S. elections, because I think that he is making a calculation that if he's going to get Trump or even DeSantis mm. in the White House, and they're going to scale down their support for Ukraine. Um, uh, he can again, he has strategic patience and he will outlive the West because the West will get bored and the West will uh, force the Ukrainians to sue for peace and Putin will take another chunk of Ukraine and then come back in a few years' time for even more. And could he even possibly be waiting to see if Trump or DeSantis gets in in order to get himself into a better position internationally? Yeah. You know, not so much to, to push further into Ukraine, but, but perhaps to more stabilise the Russian economy and, and the future of, of the country. I suspect on sanctions, probably Trump and DeSantis are not going to have that much room for manoeuvre. So I still think they're going to have to have sanctions on the country because it's still a, an offensive war, like of which we haven't seen in Europe since 1945. Mm. Um, so from that point of view, yes, the, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I suspect they will keep the sanctions on. What they will do, I'm sure, or what they are, they may consider uh, is the, the level of support that the Ukrainians are getting, which is all the more reason to give the Ukrainians the tools to finish yeah. the job now so they can make major progress now because they have the right to defend their state, they have the right to take back their territory, and they have the right to do it using force, and we are right to support them. I read a piece of yours uh, that you tweeted out about 1945.com about the sort of the nuclear threat and whether it's a, an empty threat, what sort of a threat is it? Um, and it is... A, a, a sort of a worrying thing for some people. They, they worry that our continuing support and our continuing sort of upgrading of weaponry might lead to, to Putin doing something nuclear. Um, what's the real truth about that, do you think? I think the real truth is that the, the Russians or the Kremlin is using the nuclear threat primarily to scare Western audiences. <coughs> See, he knows that if he can break the umbilical link between Russia, sorry, between Ukraine and its Western allies, then he will have a chance of winning this war. Um, he will win a, effectively a political victory that he can't win in the field of battle because he will um, scare the West away and the West won't support um, Ukraine. However, just assuming that he's bluffing is dangerous because A, we don't know for sure. And if we are certain he's bluffing, there is more reason for him to use those weapons because he will catch us off guard. Mm. 
and he will simply escalate this crisis to an extent that we will no longer, the Western allies will no longer feel comfortable supporting Ukraine. Right. The way we avoid any potential use of tactical nuclear weapons is to assume that he might well use them and to factor that very strongly into our thinking. So we, at every opportunity, at every decision point, to use a military term so that we can try to dissuade him, but also get his allies, people he actually listens to, because he doesn't listen to us, the Chinese and potentially the Indians as well, to say, if you do that, you've got no allies, you've got no friends. Yeah. And China was making some interesting noises this week following um, the meeting in San Diego and the AUKUS agreement between the US, Australia and and the UK. How important do you think it is that that we don't stop just at kind of investing more money in the military, but also in sort of upping once again the recruitment levels um, of the armed forces that we have? I think it's incredibly important. And for that point of view, well done, Ben Wallace and Rishi, for ensuring that we have more funds for the military. Um, We'd like to see more because it's important that when you're living in a dangerous world, you have the ability to deter violence. And certainly, sadly, in Ukraine, we were not able to deter that violence for, you know, for a variety of factors. And it may be that we would never have been able to. But we need to make sure that um, we are able to protect our interests globally. And that means, you know, more money for armed forces. It means more service personnel. And it means some more kit. Uh, But also it means making sure that we work closely with our allies in the Pacific and indeed in Ukraine. We know that there are three authoritarian powers who are going to challenge the global order of the century, Iran, Russia and China. I hope some of them, I hope they all desist from doing so. I hope they all get democratic, stable, uh, you know, tolerant governments in and they change their attitude towards the Western world uh, and towards, frankly, control and manipulation of their own people. But until they do, we have to defend ourselves and our interests. And that means, you know, having alliances in the Pacific where Taiwan is threatening, having alliances in the Middle East where Iran threatens our friends in Saudi and Bahrain and the UAE and elsewhere. But also it means uh, making sure that we have strong alliances in in Europe so we can continue to to fund and support the Ukrainians. And on the home front, um, from your tweets, I'm assuming you're pretty happy with the budget. And a lot of Conservatives are not, saying that this is a sort of Gordon Brown budget in disguise um, and giving people money, which is taxpayers' money, to, uh, to, to sort of give their kids away to somebody else so they can go back to work is not a very Conservative kind of philosophy. OK, I'm, look, is the budget perfect? No, but I think we're pretty limited in what we can do. And I think Jeremy's done a solid job. Um, I'm not an economist, so um, can I come up with some ideas? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I hope we're going to see them in future budgets. But actually, I, I think we need to get stability. We need to get inflation down. We need to get the economy growing. The childcare stuff is good. Whether it's the most conservative way of doing it is another matter. It may be that in future, you know, we can look to do. Um, I personally would like to see married couples having transferable tax allowances because other countries do it. And I think they're more successful in providing childcare than we do in this country. So I, a bit of me would like to go back to the married couples tax allowance and, and seeing couples incomes as, as, as a whole, rather than doing it just as individually, which we've done, I think, since um, Mrs. Thatcher's days in, in the 1980s. So I think there's an argument to be had there. But I think overall, look, it's a solid budget. We're heading in the right direction. There's a long way to go. And we all want to get taxes down. Yeah, good stuff. Bob, thanks very much indeed. Bob Seeley, uh, Conservative MP, member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, of course, as well, for the uh, member for the Isle of Wight, I should have said. Um, we've got a statement to give you. Uh, this is from the um, Plymouth Council. We've been talking about them this morning uh, and their absolutely incredibly reckless vandalism at destroying 129 trees uh, felled in Armada Way. Um, they're now saying that they're going to sow an additional 19 trees um, and they're going to put some more trees in as well. So... Having taken a load of trees out, they're now going to put some more trees in. 
According to Giles Perrett, who is the Assistant Chief Executive of Plymouth Council, uh, although the council knew some people will not be happy, uh, he says they needed to get on with this scheme. Uh, we've listened, we have made more environmental improvements and have added more trees, but our core priority has to be creating a smart, business-friendly, attractive city centre. Well, it doesn't look very attractive. If you look at the pictures, it looks like a bomb's just hit it, for heaven's sake. You know, it looks like somewhere in the centre of uh, Ukraine. Uh, he said, we hope that the majority of our residents will appreciate that we have done all we can to address people's concerns. Well, we know that that's not true as well, because basically an awful lot of people demonstrated against this uh, happening. Uh, 16,000 people signed um, a petition to stop it from happening, which in a local uh, community is quite a lot of people. Uh, and also, even on the uh, Plymouth Council website, they acknowledge that the vast majority of people are against it. And yet they went ahead and did it. And they went ahead and did it under cover of darkness, even worse, as if to suggest they were trying to do it sneakily. As if to say, we can't do this in the open air because people might stop it and people might see us. What's going on in Plymouth? You know, it used to be the sort of the bedrock uh, of the country, didn't it? People used to go from there. Plymouth Rock, wasn't it? Plymouth Ho. They used to go from there to um, America to colonise a new country. They wouldn't be able to go now because uh, there's no trees. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.